Howdy, howdy, folks. I am Father Fred Gatched, and you are tuned into the Double-Edged Sword program here on the Divine Mercy family of Catholic radio stations, KMDG 105.7 Hayes, KJDM 101.7 Lindsberg Salina, KRTT 88.1 Great Bend, and where it all began, KVDM 88.1 Hayes. And on the Double-Edged Sword program, we are cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture. This week, I thought that I would uh, maybe share a few thoughts with you. We might just call them second thoughts on the Reformation. A lot of times, I know what happens when you look through history, there's been a number of ideas that just kind of get thrown out there, and then people don't really think about it much anymore. They sort of accept it for whatever it is. And in fact, it is not. And one of those things, I think, is this whole idea of what I call the so-called Reformation, because really not a whole lot of reforming got done. What we might look at, quite simply, is how things get named in history. Let's start with that. You know, we might start with the birth of Jesus in the year zero, and we're now in the year 2012, so 2012 years after the birth of Christ. And the way typically that, just I'm painting with the broadest of strokes here, we're not really going to go into a whole lot of detail, but... In general, we would say, well, from the time Jesus was born until about the year 460 A.D. or so, that is the, you know, the period when the Roman Empire was still in business. Most historians kind of peg you know, 460 as being the end of the Roman Empire. Now, this kind of brings us to the first important point. It isn't like they went to bed on December 31st in the year 459 going, oh, we're living in the era of the Roman Empire, and they woke up on January 1st of 460 and went, oh, where'd the Roman Empire go? That's not the way it worked, all right? That's not the way history works. I mean, you know, you can have watershed moments in history, you know, like the bombing of Pearl Harbor or something like that. But for the most part, you know, history unfolds over time. And so we'll just kind of say that in general, you know, from, you know, some years before Jesus was born until about the year 460 AD, so about 430 years after Jesus died and rose from the dead and went back up into heaven, the predominant force in the Mediterranean world was the Roman Empire. After 460, what do we have? Well, for the most part, people will say, well, from 460 till, again, roughly speaking, about 1500 or so, about a thousand years we had what's called the Middle Ages. Now, again, that very term itself carries kind of a prejudicial, you know, value judgment with it. When you say the Middle Ages, or the even worse term, the Dark Ages, people will say that a lot. Well, whenever I hear people talk about the Dark Ages, I always ask them, really, did the sun not come up for a thousand years? Was it dark back in those days? And in fact, what people, people believe that, well, the Middle Ages was a time of great superstition, the Middle Ages was a time of no learning, the Middle Ages was a time of stagnation of culture and things like that. Totally untrue. Whenever they call it the Middle Ages, well, it must have been in the middle of something. What's it in the middle of? Well, it's in the middle of two great eras of hedonism is what it is. It's in the middle of the era of hedonism of Rome and the hedonism of the so-called Enlightenment, um, which we'll talk about that in a little bit, too. So we have, you know, the, the period up until, again, you know, 14, 1500, somewhere around there where we have what we would call, what some people call the Middle Ages. I'm starting to see in uh, more articles and things that I'm reading, rather than calling it the Middle Ages, they're calling it the Ages of Faith. And I think that's probably a better, more kind of objective term for it, because it was people's Catholic faith that really kind of dictated what they thought, what they saw, you know, how and how they engaged the world and how they engaged each other. After the Ages of Faith, 
we get to what's called the Renaissance. Well, Renaissance comes from the French verb to mean rebirth, reborn, which again, in and of itself, carries a value judgment with it. In order for something to be reborn, it has to have been dead before that. What was dead? Europe during the Dark Ages. So you can see that these terms, Middle Ages, Dark Ages, Renaissance, they carry a value judgment with them that doesn't really stand up to a whole lot of scrutiny. If you stop and look at it, for what it is, and you go back and look at the history a little bit more objectively, which, again, a, a lot of you know history scholars are starting to do now, they'll look at that and they'll say, well, you know, I don't know that maybe Renaissance is, isn't that accurate of a term for it. And as we move on then through the Renaissance, then we have the so-called Enlightenment and things like that. Well, what all these words, Renaissance, Enlightenment, Reformation, what all these words are, are basically words of rebellion against the Catholic faith. Because if we say, well, Europe had to be reborn, well, when was it dead? It was dead during that period from 500 to 1500 when the Catholic faith kind of reigned supreme in Europe. And, of course, we know that the Catholic faith is nothing but superstition and so on. And that's what people are going to tell us. And so, you know, that's why they come up with these judgmental terms, again, such as Renaissance. And then we have the so-called Enlightenment. And they talk about Enlightenment. Well, you know, before we were enlightened, we must have been in the dark, right? Were we in the dark? We were in the dark ages. What's the Enlightenment all about? The Enlightenment is all about, first of all, some very real, very real progress that was made in the areas of science and technology and things like that. Um, you know, Isaac Newton discovered his calculus and Galileo pointed his telescope to the heavens and things like that. So there were very, very real signs of progress that were going on. But the whole idea behind Enlightenment is, is that I can figure these things out. The human race can figure anything out through science, through technology and so on. And we don't need God. That's what the Enlightenment's about. Then you get to what's called the, the modern era. Again, wonderful sounding word, modern. Um, most of us think of the word modern as, um, you know, like I have the most modern computer or the most modern cell phone or the most modern iPad or something like that. We think of modern as being the most up to date, the most cutting edge, when in fact modernism is a, um, is a philosophical term from the 16th and 17th centuries, which was basically saying we're going to remake our culture and remake our society in the absence of God. There, there's a book by a man named Brian Appleyard. He's a British chap, and you can look that up and read about it sometime. But again, we get back to this term of Reformation. Okay, It was in 1516, October 31st, 1516, that Martin Luther, what have covered the past four and a half centuries, become the famous 95 Theses to the, to the cathedral door in Wittenberg. And so you have this term Reformation, you have the term Protestant, or, you know, to kind of break it down into its pieces, protest ant. You're protesting something, and something is being reformed. What are you protesting? You're protesting the Catholic faith. What is being reformed? You know, the hopelessly corrupt Catholic Church. Well, you know, let's kind of take a look at this for a little bit. You know, um, to this day on the Protestant calendar, October 31st, our Halloween, is celebrated as Reformation Day. And as we progress further into the future, you know, we have the benefit of understanding events of the past. It's like I was saying a few minutes ago, we're starting to see more historians kind of look back and really kind of question the very names and the very terms that are being thrown around that have been thrown around for the past five centuries and really kind of ask, are these really accurate? Because I think one of the things that we want to ask ourselves is, 
you know, if you were living back in, say, the year 847, for example, I mean, you'd be right smack in the middle of what we now call the Middle Ages. Do you think people woke up in the morning in 847 and said, gee, it sure is interesting to be living in the Middle Ages or even worse, you know, here we are living in the Dark Ages. When will it become light? When will we have Renaissance and Enlightenment? People weren't saying that. These terms, these historical terms, were assigned hundreds of years after the fact by historical scholars. And again, you know, hopefully you know, we're starting to see as we kind of look, get a better view of the past, as we're able to see it with a little bit more objectivity, I think, we're going to start seeing some of those terms um, hopefully be altered to reflect reality a little bit more accurately. But I think what we want to do, it might be worthwhile for us, would be to kind of revisit this idea of the Reformation and reevaluate it what it means today. You know, one of the blessings of having um, the radio station that we have now is that it gives us time. We've got a good, I don't know, 40, 45 minutes, maybe even an hour here on Double-Edged Sword in which we can kind of dig into things and talk about things in some detail. You know, at Mass on Sunday, the average Sunday Mass sermon is probably between, you know, maybe 8 and 12, 15 minutes long. And so, you know, the priest has to pack as much as he can into that. I know that in our day and age, it seems like everybody runs around. They've constantly got their cell phone out or their BlackBerry out. And they're, um, they're always punching those little buttons on there trying to get a text message back and forth. And, you know, the text messaging and the, the, the Twittering and all that kind of stuff, it always has to be very done very briefly and very concisely. And sad to say, we've kind of gotten to a point now in our culture where a lot of people don't really want to take the time necessary to really wade into a, an, an ex, a complete explanation. Um, most of the time, people want it to fit on the little screen on their cell phone. And if it's more than that, they don't really want to um, spend the effort that's necessary to understand the, you know, the nuances of, of really kind of what's going on. And so I think that, you know, one of the things, again, we have the, the blessing here of, of Divine Mercy Radio to be able to look at these things into a little bit more detail and hopefully be fair to all sides um, involved here. So you know, the first thing we might want to look at is the very term of reformation. That is something which is being reformed. Why do you reform something? Because it's not formed right to begin with. Um, was the Catholic Church of the 16th century in 1516 when Martin Luther was doing his thing in need of reform? Of course it was. Is the church in today in need of reform? Of course it is. Was the church in the day of St. Paul in need of reformed? Of course it was. That's why he wrote most of his letters, was to reform things. Simply stated, the church is in a constant state of reform as she adopts to the times in which she finds herself and the particular needs of the souls that, had, that she has to serve. And so what history has shown is that I think is that this so-called reformation of the 16th century that Luther precipitated might just as well be referred to as a shipwreck of Christianity or the disintegration of Christianity if we want to be maybe a little bit more, more objective. The movement was started by Luther and again in the early 1500s and later what happened was you had other guys like John Calvin and Erwig Zwingli that come along and they say well no Luther got it wrong we Calvin you know and Zwingli we've got it right. Well, then, you know, come a little few, maybe a little bit later, get Henry VIII mixed into the mixture, and he's saying, no, they didn't get it wrong, I got it right. So he starts the Episcopalian Church. John Wesley comes along, 
and um, starting the Methodist Church, and he's looking back on, um, on again, the teachings of Luther. Luther, you know, back in those days was basically saying that what we did in life hadn't, you know, didn't make any difference for our salvation. The only thing that mattered was faith. Again, I don't think the Lutheran Church teaches that to this day, but John Wesley comes along and says, no, there has to be some kind of, of discipline. There has to be, you know, some kind of, of, of um parameters put on life that we have to live within, we have to, we have to live inside of. It wasn't like Martin Luther said, believe deeply and sin boldly. That is to say, Luther was saying, we're all just hopeless sinners and we can't do anything about it anyway, so we might as well just get the sinning over with, believe in Christ and throw ourselves at the mercy of God. Well, you can see what would happen if people did that. We'd have a world of more chaos than what we got now. So John Wesley comes along and says, no, you know, there has to be a, you know, there has to be discipline, there has to be sacrifice and so on. And so he comes up with a method of achieving this holy, hence his church is called the Methodist Church. But again, if we look back and, you know, we look at Calvin and his Presbyterian church, we look at Luther and his Lutheran church, we look at Wesley and his Methodist church and so on, we have all the markings of the legacy of Protestantism. A Christianity that is far from being reformed, but is instead fragmented and shattered by a process that continues to this day. Um, I think that at last count, there was a little bit over 20,000 different Christian denominations in North America. In, the, in this country, because of the separation of church and state and because of freedom of religion, which is a wonderful thing, anybody who wants to can just go out, rent a building, buy a building, put a sign up on the outside that says... Elm Street Bible Assembly or something like that, proclaim themselves to be the pastor and they're in business, all right? And, um, and that's basically what happens. That's so far has been the legacy of Protestantism. If you're unhappy with your, with your current church, go shopping around till you find one that you like. If you can't find one that you like, start your own. That's kind of a huge deviation from what Jesus says in John 10, 16, that there will be one flock and one shepherd. Now, also, when you look at, again at the way that this has come up, there are no structures of accountability, again, in, in the wider Protestant world. Again, individual churches have, um, have structures and so on, but generally in Protestantism in general, anyone can proclaim him or herself to be a pastor or a minister. Again, rent the building, attract a following, and like I said, literally, you're in business. And when one group you know, disagrees with their denomination, they can break off and start another. It's a historical fact that the only real reforming that came to Christianity during the 16th century was through the Catholic Counter-Reformation and by means of the Council of Trent. And, um, and, and again, so, you know, I don't think Luther really succeeded in reforming anything. What he succeeded in doing was dismantling Christendom that had held Europe together for, you know, over a thousand years. Also, I think when you, um, when you look at the, the way that all that has played out over the centuries and the, the breakup of, of Christianity, it really hasn't done us a whole lot of good. You know, the, the fracturing of the body of Christ has been a tool and a toy of secular political leaders since the time of Luther. Again, I think what a lot of people have this idea in their head, it's, you know, kind of like the little cell phone version of the Reformation. You know, it's on your cell phone screen. It's very simple and you can text it, you know, and with a bunch of little abbreviations. Um, Catholic Church was selling indulgences. Luther had to come and set them straight. If you believe that about the Reformation, you are woefully ill-informed. And this is kind of what we want to talk about. What was going on during the 16th and 17th centuries was Europe was really kind of totally rethinking itself and, and reimagining itself. During the ages of faith, which some people will call the Middle Ages and the uninformed and stupid will call the Dark Ages. But during the ages of faith, 
Europe very much operated on a corporate model, and that is to say that people understood that they had to cooperate with each other. There had to be, you know, there was very much a communitarian mindset that in one little town, you know, the butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker all had to cooperate among themselves in bartering and making and, and trading their goods if all of them were to survive. Now, all of a sudden, um, what was happening in Europe was there was kind of a more individualistic mindset that was coming about, and people were kind of saying, well, I really don't need my neighbor, the butcher, anymore, because now I have money and I can go buy my meat from whoever I want. I don't need my baker neighbor anymore to trade with because now that I have money, I can buy my baked goods from the guy across town. And so the what was happening was those, those individual relationships and so on that had held Europe together during the Middle Ages, those were all kind of being you know pushed by the wayside. And again, it's not like people woke up on January the 1st of the year 1500 and said, well, you know, the Middle Ages are over or the Ages of Faith are over and now we're in the Renaissance. It wasn't like that. You know, one kind of faded out while the other one unfolded and, and became more of a predominant force. But I think that we really have to understand, if we really, really want to understand the truth of the so-called Reformation, it cannot be understood apart from Europe reimagining itself, Europe rethinking itself, and moving away from a communitarian mindset to an individualistic mindset. And it's this individualistic way of thinking that Protestantism is born into. This is why, for example, you had to this very day, you know, a lot of, one of the hallmarks of Protestantism is you interpret your Bible your way. You have the Holy Spirit. You don't need to have any kind of an authority structure telling you how to interpret your Bible. You just open it up. You read it. The Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it. And that's all you need. Well, again, I think all you have to do is look and see how one of the things that causes the splintering of these thousands and thousands of Protestant denominations is varying interpretations of Scripture. You know, one group will say a piece of Scripture says X. The other group says it says Y. They can't come to any kind of a consensus, and so they split up and form, you know, more denominations. And so to this very day, even when you go back in the days of the European kings and the emperors, they were always trying to use religion as a tool for some kind of political gain. And to this very day, the disunity of Christians is a pawn in the hands of tyrants. I remember back on January 19th of 1997, on the eve of Pope John Paul II's now historic visit to Cuba, National Public Radio aired a story on religion in Cuba. And they were talking about how in the early days of the Cuban Communist Revolution, that Castro had closed the Catholic schools and severely curtailed religious practice. The common processions they had um, behind the island nation's patroness, Our Lady of Grace, um, were made illegal. And it's like the Mexicans have Our Lady of Guadalupe, the, the, the Cubans had Our Lady of Grace, and they would have these big processions through the street on her feast day. And, of course, you know, Castro made that illegal. Anything that would unite the people behind anything other than the communist atheist state was suppressed. Now, according to the NPR report, when Castro started to loosen up on religious oppression, the first thing he did was he, you know, he sent to the United States and courted only Protestant denominations to come to Cuba. He wanted the Baptists and the Methodists and the Presbyterians and the Episcopalians and the Lutherans and so forth to come. And according to the NPR report, the reason was Protestants are less centralized and therefore would pose no threat to the communist regime. What Castro wanted in Cuba is what we have in the United States, a fragmented, disjointed, disunited Christianity that would not stand up against the government. 
The bottom line, however, is clear. Castro wanted to deal with the Protestants, but he had to deal with the Pope. And so I think that it's important for us, first of all, when we hear these, when you hear terms like, you know, Reformation, all that kind of stuff thrown around, I think it's important for us to really to understand our history. And it's really impinging upon us to to study history and not just kind of go with the, you know, the same old things, the same old hacks and saws that we hear all the time and really understand what, you know, what's happening historically. If we don't, then again, you know, the things we always hear, well, you know, it's because in the Middle Ages, in the Dark Ages, you know, the Catholic Church was benefiting by keeping the people superstitious. And by keeping the people superstitious, then that's how they were able to sell indulgences. And boy, if it wasn't for Martin Luther, wouldn't we all be in a bunch of trouble? I think history kind of shows the opposite. I think history shows because of Martin Luther, we are in a bunch of trouble. But again, that we should, and we should pray for the healing of those divisions um, so that as Jesus himself said, you know, again, like I said in John 10, 16, there will ultimately hopefully be one flock and one shepherd. So that pretty much does it for the first half of the program. We'll take a little break now and hear from the folks that sponsor our programming here. So when we get back, we'll talk about another thing that gets misunderstood and it's been um, misconstrued throughout the centuries and used for a big propaganda ploy, and that is the Galileo Affair. So everybody sit tight and we'll be right back. Hey gang, we are back, and I am Father Fred Gatchett, the Vicar General for the Diocese of Salina. I'm the Rector of Sacred Heart Cathedral in Salina, Kansas, and also part-time religion teacher at Sacred Heart High School, also here in Salina, where I teach sophomores Old and New Testament, and you are tuned into the Double-Edged Sword program here on the fine family of Divine Mercy Catholic radio stations, KMDG 105.7 Hayes, KJDM 101.7 Lindsberg Salina, KRTT 88.1 Great Bend, and KBDM 88.1 Hayes. And on the Double-Edged Sword program, we are cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture. We had just used in the previous section, we were talking about um, some of the misunderstandings that people seem to have about the so-called Reformation, that a lot of folks seem to think that, well, it was because the Catholic Church was just so hopelessly corrupt that we just had to have the Reformation to put things back on track. And I think we showed in the previous segment that um, probably that isn't what happened, that you know, the Reformation really didn't reform anything. The only thing that did reform anything was the Catholic Counter-Reformation, which never hardly gets talked about. But I think one other thing that kind of comes up a lot is the Galileo affair. People will talk about Galileo as if they know something about him. Most people don't. But what about the Galileo affair? I think, you know, thanks to a very successful Protestant rhetoric and propaganda campaign over the last five centuries, the Galileo affair, as it has become to be known, is kind of a focal point of those who wish to discredit the Catholic faith. Detractors of the Catholic faith claim that the church's refusal to accept Galileo's findings only proves that the church is closed-minded and accepts new things only grudgingly, and even then, only when she is forced to do so by more enlightened and intelligent minds. Furthermore, since the church was wrong about Galileo, how can the church claim to speak with authority on any matter, let alone claim to be infallible? Well, this clearly calls for some further um, explanation and investigation. So first of all, you know, one of the things that's um, never mentioned in any discourse about Galileo is that in the face of criticism by some bishops and cardinals and other clergy within the church, many others, including Pope Paul V and his successor, Pope Gregory XV, they actually supported Galileo. Now, this should make us wonder why Pope Gregory XV's successor, Pope Urban VIII, came down so hard on Galileo. 
As it turns out, Maffeo Beberini, who later became Pope Urban VIII, and Galileo were childhood friends. And as we have seen, Galileo was having trouble with some of the ecclesiastical authorities within the church regarding his advocating of the Copernican theory, but he did enjoy the support of the popes, including Urban VIII. Now, the thing of it is, you know, we have to kind of maybe um, review a little bit what's going on here. Back in those days, everybody, most everybody, again, going back to the most ancient of times, were pretty much convinced that we were standing on terra firma. We were standing on earth, which did not move, and that everything else, the stars, the planets, the sun and the moon, moved around us. That's called the geocentric theory. You know, geo from geology, you know, geos from Greek meaning earth. So it's the earth-centered theory. People believed that the earth was in the middle of the universe and everything spun around us. And they actually had pretty good reason for believing that. It's called direct scientific observation. If you go out and stand in your backyard right now and stand out there for about the next 12 or 15 hours or so, you will see that you are not going anywhere and that it is the sun that moves across the sky. It is the moon that moves across the sky. And when the sun goes down, you'll see the stars spinning and the stars move around us as well. Those folks back then had very good reason for believing what they believed. Now, guys like Galileo, guys like Copernicus, you know, Nicholas Copernicus, sort of an interesting thing. The church never declared the Copernican theory to be heretical, and Copernicus himself was actually a priest. He was the guy who originally kind of came up with the idea that perhaps, you know, the sun was in the middle of the solar system and that the earth spun around the sun or orbited around the sun. And so we kind of have to ask ourselves the question, because it is a historical fact that Pope Urban VIII did come down hard on Galileo. But the question is why? And there are two possible answers. Either the Pope came down hard on Galileo because the Pope stubbornly wanted to keep on believing that the earth was in the center of the universe and Galileo was right and the Pope was wrong. That might be one reason. Turns out that's not it. There may have been a clash of personalities. You know, maybe the Pope and Galileo kind of got into a little bit of a tiff and Galileo came up on the short end of the stick. That's more what happened. Let's figure out what was going on. What the deal was, Galileo set out to write a book, and the name of the book was called The Dialogue of the Two Chief Systems of the World. In other words, Galileo was going to set out a book that would say either the, the, the earth is in the middle of the solar system or the sun is. Now, Galileo knew that the book would never sell, and he knew that if, it, and if it's not going to sell, it's not going to be published unless it has the church's stamp of approval. Again, back in those days, anybody could publish anything they wanted. But if you wanted it to sell, if you wanted to get it in the bookstores and things like that, you wanted to have the church's stamp of approval on it. It isn't that the church would say you couldn't print it. They're just saying we're not going to approve it. Now, what Galileo did was he used his personal relationship and friendship with Matteo Barberini or Pope Urban VIII to secure this approval before the book was written. He basically went up to Pope Urban and said, hey, I want to write this book on these two world systems, and I want, you know, the church's approval of this book. And Urban and Galileo, they know each other. I don't know. Maybe they talked about it over a glass of wine or something like that. And Urban said, fine, go ahead. Um, but he said, make sure that you present both of the systems. There was what's called the Ptolemaic system after the, the Greek mathematician Ptolemy and the Copernican system after Nicholas Copernicus. He said, present them equally and fairly, and he would approve the book. See, because the important thing to remember at this time, see, it's easy in hindsight to take what we know now and look back in the old days and say, boy, those people back then sure were stupid. Um, that's not a very wise thing to do. 
because 100 years from now, people are going to look back on us in 2012 and say, boy, those people back in the early part of the 21st century sure were stupid. Well, that's not a really fair thing to do. It's not good history. And at this time, no one was yet sure that the Earth orbited the sun. It was a new and an untried theory. Galileo was sure that it was right. And in his mind, he was convinced. And he wanted to make sure that his church, the Catholic Church, bet on the right horse. In the book, and again, this is why we're so blessed to have um, Catholic Radio, because it takes some time to explain all this, so just sit back and relax. In his book, The Dialogue of the Two Chief Systems of the World, Galileo used the literary style of what's called a dialogue. That's why it's called Dialogue in the title. And it was a very common practice in that day in which the writer of a book would set up an argument between two debaters. The benefit of this is that the author is in the position to have the debater promoting the author's point of view, saying the right things at the right time, while the same author puts the words in the mouth of his opponent. And so you can make your opponent look stupid while making yourself look pretty good. Now, this might seem unfair, but the next author is going to do the same thing with the opposing point of view. And so if you read both books and you would kind of come to some, you know, semblance of what the truth is. In Galileo's book, the name he gave to the man who insisted on sticking with the geocentric theory, with the theory that the Earth was in the middle of the solar system, he was called Simplicio, which was a real 6th century commentator, but it's also a clever play on the term simpleton. And so in other words, Galileo, again, kind of playing with these, with these words a little bit, because he's very clever, um, is basically saying anyone who believes that the Earth is in the center of the universe or in the center of the solar system is a simpleton. Now, in our day and age, we would agree with them. But remember, back in Galileo's day and age, that hadn't been proved yet. And so instead of presenting both sides fairly, as he had promised his friend the Pope that he would do, Galileo turned what was supposed to be an informative book into a persuasive book that basically accused anyone who believed in the Ptolemaic geocentric theory of being an idiot. When Pope Urban VIII saw the book, he believed that Galileo was calling him the simpleton. It was a personal insult to the Pope, not the Copernican theory, and that's what unleashed the wrath of Urban on Galileo. Now, Urban believed that he had been publicly mocked by Galileo and then and personally betrayed for the trust he had given Galileo in pre-approving his book. It was for this act, then, that Galileo was brought before the Inquisition in 1633 and forced to publicly read a humiliating confession retracting the statements that he had made in the book. If any errors need to be convinced, they are Galileo betraying his friendship with the Pope and the Pope failing to exercise some restraint in Christian charity with his old friend. But you'll notice this has nothing to do with the rightness or wrongness of the theory of the earth going around the sun. The problem is, is again, you look back and you, know, you, you, you isolate out a few facts of the, of the case and take them out of context. Did the Pope force Galileo to retract his statements and his position? Yes, he did. Why? Well, if you listen to the rhetoric that we hear in our day and age, it's because the Pope and the Church are always opposed to change. The Pope is closed-minded. The Church is closed-minded. And whenever open-minded people, you know, the kind of people that promote abortion and gay marriage and things like that, whenever open-minded people come and you know, want to enforce their particular way of thinking, then, of course, it's the Church, which is always stands in the way of progress, like it did with Galileo, is always standing in the way. Well, you can see that that, that, that way of thinking is, is, um, is completely bankrupt if, if you're basing it on history. The Pope 
came down on Galileo because Galileo betrayed his trust, because he thought that Galileo had publicly insulted him. Again, what was the Pope's mistake? I think that maybe the Pope could have, you know, said, well, I'm a big boy, I can take it. And maybe he could have figured out another way to bring about justice. But you'll notice it has nothing to do with championing the rightness of the wrongness of whether or not the sun goes around the earth or the earth goes around the sun. So two things should become pretty clear. The first is the Catholic Church never declared the heliocentric, helios is, is Greek for sun, in other words, having the sun in the center. The sun never declared the, the theory of the sun being in the center of the universe from Copernicus to be heretical. Remember that Copernicus himself was a Catholic priest and was never in any trouble for his work. Um, the second is that Galileo is nowhere near the martyr to science um, um, and truth that the Protestant myth would have us believe. So again, I think that when we kind of see the way that, um, that this has been you know, distorted and stuff over the years, a more honest reading of, of, of history will kind of show us what was really going on. And in fact, if you're, if you're in, the, in the mood to go to the library... Uh, there's a magazine that I subscribe to called Sky and Telescope. It's kind of the, you know, the, the, the Bible of, of the amateur astronomer. And if you go, I'm sure the Hayes Public Library has, I know the Fort, I know the Fort Hayes Library has them. If you go back to the March 1993 issue, there's, a, um, there's an article in there called How Galileo Changed the Rules of Science by a historian named Owen Gingrich. I don't know if he's related to the presidential candidate or not. But um, he's, he's a historian called Owen Gingrich, and he wrote this article called How Galileo Changed the Rules of Science in Sky and Telescope magazine in March 1993. Um, if you go get that and look it up, it's a pretty interesting article. We've been um, talking about some um, second thoughts on the so-called Reformation. In the first section, we talked a little bit about just what the Reformation was really about. And a lot of times people want to just distill it down to, well, it was about the sale of indulgences. And in fact, historically, there's a lot more going on than just that. Um, last section, we talked a little bit about Galileo. And this section, I think I want to talk a little bit about, um, you know, with, with the Reformation, talk about Martin Luther a little bit and his relationship with the Jewish people. I think this is kind of an important thing to look at. It's, it's sort of a painful thing, but it's, it's, it's true. And it's one of the truths of history that's been kind of swept under the rug. You know, we have the horrible, horrible um, experience of the Holocaust of, of Hitler and the Jews during World War II. And I don't think we really need to say a whole lot more about that. Everybody knows what was, what was going on. But one of the sort of one of the final um, casualties of that has been the lies that have been um, that have been put forth about um, Pope Pius XII. In that there's a lot of people that want to say that, you know, Pius XII, in fact, there was a guy some, some time ago named John um, Cornwell, I think, wrote a book called Hitler's Pope. And in it, he, he accused, he had a whole bunch of accusations about Pius XII, you know, being complicit, you know, being, being Hitler's right-hand man in trying to get rid of the Jews. I mean, it was the most remarkable thing. I remember when that book came out. It was all over the news and all over the newspapers and so on, all kinds of excerpts from it. And um, then when better historical minds kind of, you know, it's a little bit more of a peer review, looked at it, it turned out, you know, that historians were saying, where's this guy getting this stuff from? This is just totally bogus. The book, it was totally discredited. But by that time, you know, none of the newspapers and none, and none of the um, news stations came out and said, hey, you know, you remember, you know, a couple months ago we were making all this noise about Cornwell's book about, you know, Hitler's Pope. Turns out that book is totally bogus. So our apologies to the Pope and to the Catholic Church. You might notice that never happened. Don't hold your breath waiting for it to happen.
But I think that if we look at um, you know we look at um, the history of one of the one of the dark parts of the so-called Reformation, one of the aspects of Martin Luther that never gets talked about. Again, they'll make up lies about Pius XII and the Jews and ignore the truth about Martin Luther and the Jews. And so, in order to ensure that the sins of Catholics are never forgotten. History is quick to come up with catchy names like Bloody Mary um, for the Catholic queen, Mary I, um, when she had Protestant opponents burned at the stake for heresy um, back in, in England. And the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre is cliche for alleged Catholic cruelty. But it's fair to say that historically, the sins of misguided Catholics committed in the name of the Catholic faith are never forgotten, while atrocities of Protestants of equal and greater magnitude are never mentioned. For example... How many of you out there listening to me now even know that under the tyrannical rule of John Calvin, the founder of the Presbyterian Church, countless Catholic churches were burned, sacked, and vandalized, and people who of their own free will wished to continue practicing the Catholic faith were persecuted and murdered under Calvin's direction? Those who refused to submit to Henry VIII's acts of supremacy, including dozens of Carthusian monks, were put to death. Again, that's one of the things that never gets talked about, about Protestantism in England. Queen Elizabeth I, Henry's successor, with her Protestant forces under her leadership as the head of the Church of England, resulted in some 30,000 Irish Catholics starving to death in 1582. In other words, if you didn't agree with the Queen, she and her troops starved you to death. If you didn't want to join the Church of England, you starved to death. And that was Catholics that starved to death because they didn't want to become Protestant. And then Luther himself encouraged the slaughter of some 100,000 peasants in the peasant uprising of 1524. Again, you know, you'll hear all kinds of things on the news and in, in the media and in movies and so on. They'll talk about, oh, you know, what about the Inquisition? Oh, if you don't agree with the Catholic Church, they put you to death. Well, maybe we'll have to talk about the Inquisition on a different broadcast sometime and really talk about what the truth of that's all about. But one thing is certain, 30,000 Irish Catholics starved to death because of the Protestant Queen of England, and Luther himself wanted to see 100,000 people slaughtered, most of them Catholics, in the peasant uprising of 1524. Funny how history never talks about that stuff. And this kind of brings up an interesting um, predicament about Protestantism. We talked about this a little bit in the first in the first section. When we talked about how the, you know, the Protestant denominations just multiply and divide and break off all, all over the place. But if you mention the cruelty of Calvin's Presbyterianism, the Methodists say, well, don't look at us, we're Methodist. Or if you look at the murders of Catholics by Queen Elizabeth I as the head of the Episcopalian Church, the Baptists say, that's the Episcopalians, not us. Or if you try to bring up Luther's brutality and rhetoric against the Jews, the disciples of Christ go, Luther believed that, not us. And then there's always kind of the fly-by-night, happy-clappy gospel good time hour church that just started up last week, which proudly proclaims, we have no scandals. But cite any crime, real or imagined, against the Catholic Church, and all of a sudden Protestantism becomes united in a big, big hurry and points the finger in unison at the Church of Rome. So again, I think, you know, historically, that's just kind of terribly dishonest. But when we look at Luther himself, in his later years, Luther's writings um, became very coarse and very crude. And in fact, um, you know, Luther was very quick to weave vulgar words into his religious writings. Um, he didn't use euphemisms. He used the actual four-letter words. And uh, um, of the many other destructive aspects of Luther's legacy, one that's rarely discussed in studies regarding him is his anti-Semitism. In the beginning of his revolution against the Catholic faith, Luther sympathized with the Jews. He saw them as just one more group of people that was being oppressed by the evil Catholic Church. 
Luther was convinced that once purified of its papist elements, that was one of their favorite words to throw around back in those days. If you were a Catholic, you were a papist. And um, the various like, you know, things like, you know, liturgical celebrations and rituals and incense and anointings and things like that, they called that popery. P-O-P-E-R-Y, that is to say it was, you know, just things that the Pope came up with and things that weren't necessarily, you know, authentic expressions of Christianity. And so Luther was convinced that once Christianity was purified of its popery, of its papist elements, the people from all religions would flock back to his new and pure brand of Christianity. But once it became clear that the Jews were no more ready or willing to become Lutherans, they were willing to become Catholic, Martin Luther turned on them and he turned on them with a vengeance. Um, I'm going to read to you here a little excerpt from Luther's book called On the Jews and Their Lies. He wrote it in 1543, some three years before he died. So again, it was, it was a book that he wrote called On the Jews and Their Lies. And one of the things that Luther had was he had an incredible encyclopedic knowledge of scripture and he could pull scriptural quotes just out of his head as fast as lightning. And basically, if you read this, this, this terrible thing that he wrote called On the Jews and Their Lies, what it is, is Luther using his encyclopedic knowledge of scripture to go through the Old Testament and say, well, you know, the Old Testament is supposedly the Bible and the scriptures of the Jews. And so here it is, the Bible says this, but those Jews do that. You know, the first book of Samuel says this, but the Jews do something else. Moses says this, but the Jews do that. And so basically he's going through, you know, for you know about 100 pages, um, talking about how the Jews are liars and hypocrites and things like that, because from his point of view, they don't even live up to their own faith as outlined in, in the Hebrew scriptures. Now, the thing of it is, you know, here, here's, a, here's a, a quote that comes from Luther's book on the Jews and their lives, which he wrote in 1543. Here's the quote. Martin Luther says, Therefore, be on your guard against the Jews, knowing that wherever they have their synagogues, nothing is found but a den of devils, in which sheer self-glory, conceit, lies, blasphemy, and defaming of God and man are practiced most maliciously and vehemming his eyes on them. God's wrath has consigned them, the Jews, to the presumption of their boasting, their conceit, their slander of God, their cursing of all people, are all a true and great service rendered to God, all of which is very fitting, um, becoming, such a, um, becoming a, to such noble and, and blood of the fathers and the circumcised saints. They believe, despite the fact that what they know are steeped in manifest vices, mentally, just as the devils themselves do. And whenever you see or hear a Jew teaching, remember that you are hearing nothing more than a venomous basilisk. A basilisk is kind of a lizard who poisons and kills people to mar by Mary Fasten. And with all this, they claim to be doing right. Be on guard against them. Now, I've read this quote before in public, and I, but I won't tell people who said it. And so, you know, when, when you start off with, therefore, be on guard against your Jews and, you know, calling them basilisks and demons and all that kind of stuff. And I say, you know, who do you think said that? And people always go, well, Adolf Hitler, obviously. Well, no, it wasn't Adolf Hitler. That was Martin Luther. That's the father of the Reformation saying that. And then in his book on the Jews and their lies, Luther goes on to propose an eight step solution to deal with the Jewish problem. And that eight-step solution includes burn the Jewish synagogues, destroy Jewish homes, take away the Jewish holy books, forbid the rabbis to teach, do not allow Jews to travel, forbid usury in all forms, that is, forbid the charging of interest on loans in all forms, force Jews to do physical labor, and if all else fails, expel them. 
Now, again, you look at that and you think, my gosh, that's exactly what Hitler did during the during the Holocaust. You know, he burned the synagogues. He destroyed the homes. You know, he didn't let the rabbis teach. He, you know, he expelled them. You know, he made for them to do physical labor and so on. Now, again, people will read that and think it came from Hitler. But in fact, you know, it came from Luther. Hitler was a great admirer of Luther. Um, Kristallnacht, you might have heard that term before, called the Night of the Broken Glass. It marked the official beginning of Hitler's systematic efforts to exterminate the Jews. And on November, on November 9th, 1938, German soldiers stormed through Jewish neighborhoods in Nazi-controlled cities in Germany and Austria, lynching and murdering Jewish men, women, and children, destroying synagogues and Jewish homes and businesses. Now, why November the 9th? Hitler issued the order that the official persecution of the Jews would begin on November 9th because that's Martin Luther's birthday. And Hitler wanted to honor Luther with that. Now, it's not fair accurate. You've got to be very clear about this. Otherwise, I'm just as guilty as everything I've been you know, kind of bringing up here in this broadcast. It is not fair or accurate to say that Luther was the cause of the Holocaust. That's not right because, you know, Luther was hooting and hollering, you know, some 400 years before. But it is fair to say that Luther's anti-Semitic writings certainly you know, plowed the ground and made for fertile ground in which the ideas of the likes of Hitler and his Third Reich could take root. In the minds of many people, we talked about the Inquisition a while back, um, is used to perpetuate the accusation that the Catholic Church is intolerant of other points of view and that anyone who would dare oppose the Church could be burned the stake as a heretic. An honest reading, however, of history tells us that it was the secular governments who used the Inquisition in the most cruel way, and it was the church that was much more kind and gentle in dealing with the heretics of the age. But it's this perpetual dishonesty in the reading and telling of history in which outrageous claims against the Catholic Church go unchallenged, while ugly facts about Protestant history, such as Queen Elizabeth I starving Irish Catholics to death, such as Luther's, Luther's hatred for the Jews, such as Luther's encouragement of the, the slaughter of 100,000 peasants and the peasants' uprising of 1524, all that stuff goes pretty much ignored. And again, I think that just in the interest of fairness, in the interest of accuracy, in the interest of truth, that we really kind of need to do a better job of looking at, at, at the historical truths of what's going on and, you know, kind of coming back, especially as Catholics, and being able to say, well, you know, you might have heard this in your Sunday school class, or sad to say, you might have even heard this in your university class, but it's not true. It takes a, quite a bit of effort to go back and do, do the reading that's necessary and the study that's necessary to arrive at, at historical truth and putting things in their proper historical context. But unless and until, you know, we do that, and again, I've done a little bit of it here, and you've done a little bit by listening to this broadcast, but unless and until we do that, we're just going to see more and more of the same. We're going to see more people going around and just perpetuating, you know, the, these historical half-truths and just out-and-out -out lies of the so-called Reformation, you know, of, you know, the church persecuting Galileo and all that kind of stuff. And, um, and then, you know, the, the lie just goes completely unchecked. The, Jesus says, you know, we will know the truth and the truth will set us free. Um, knowing the truth, though, again, it's going to take a little bit more effort than listening to TV. It's going to take a little bit more effort than getting a 20-second soundbite. And it's certainly going to take, take up a lot more space than what appears on the screen of a cell phone. So I'll leave you with that for now. So that pretty much wraps it up for this installment of Double-Edged Sword. Thanks again for tuning in. Just want to remind you to visit our website 
at dv, that's V as in Victor, www.dvmercy.com. You can also call the station at 785-621-4110. If you go to our Divine Mercy website, there are archived installments of Double-Edged Sword and also the One Body program, both of which are locally produced by our Catholic radio stations here in Divine Mercy Radio. And those are there for you to peruse and listen to at your leisure if you want to go pick up an older installment of one of those shows that you want to listen to again. Also, check out our donate button because um, there is where we depend on people's donations to keep us on the air and to keep the message going out to these Catholic airwaves. And so again, we thank you for tuning in to this installment of Double-Edged Sword here on Divine Mercy Radio, and we'll see you on the next time. Thanks for tuning in. Goodbye and God bless.